So what do you think of when you hear the word spy? Do you think of gadgets and gizmos, James Bond, or maybe Edward Snowden? Well, today you're going to hear what it's like to raise a family undercover in Russia during the Cold War, the foreign threats that are operating on American soil right now to steal our own secrets, and an intelligence operative's opinion on Putin and his war on Ukraine. You're not going to want to miss it, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for the fastest hour in radio. From Montana for Montana, this is Voices of Montana with Courtney Kibble-White. Call in today at 866-627-5483 or text or comment or question to 781-627-5483. Now here's your host, Courtney Kibble-White. Did you catch that, ladies and gentlemen? We are a husband and wife duo today operating in the studio. Kind of fun uh, and exciting to get to do that. Tom Schultz is on vacation, so we we wish him well. And and you might be wondering, why on earth, Courtney, are you wanting to talk about spies today? Well, that's because we have one legendary award winning spy uh, with us today in studio who is visiting. He's actually Jim Olson will be keynoting the Montana Bankers Association meeting that's happening in, in Billings right now, a, a group of Montana and Wyoming bankers, and, and Jim will be sharing with them some of his thoughts on what might happen in uh, on Putin's war in Russia. So who is Jim Olson? Jim is on the faculty of the Bush School of Government at Texas A&M University, where he teaches a course on intelligence and national security, and and he served his uh, entire first career as the CIA's directorate of in the CIA's directorate of operations. Um, his career highlights include serving as the chief of CIA counterintelligence and overseas assignments in Moscow, Vienna, and Mexico City. He's wrote literally wrote two books on spying: um, Fair Play, Moral Dilemmas of Spying, and To Catch a Spy: The Art of Counterintelligence. He raised a family in the Cold War that your children didn't even know that you guys were undercover. So, wow, what a fascinating person we have. James, thanks so much for coming to Montana. Well, thank you, Courtney. It's a real pleasure to be here. Good morning, Montana. (laughs) Yes, our our listeners across the state, we've got a lot of different things on our minds right now, um, from flooding to to drought. And um, I hope that that today's show might... um, might cause a little little bit of entertainment and and take us away to uh, perhaps another life that um, man that 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 causes uh, curiosity and uh, we think about all these different Hollywood movies and what spying might be like but but uh, Jim is going to communicate to us what it, what it really was so Jim uh, you're a, a small town kid really from Iowa how how does one end up in a career in the in the CIA. Well, it was really kind of a fluke. I never would have thought of this career. I went to the University of Iowa. Then I went into the Navy, Courtney, and served aboard guided missile destroyers and frigates. Loved the Navy. But finally decided I wanted to go back to my home state of Iowa. So I left the Navy. I went to law school. And I was going to be a small-town lawyer in a county seat town in Iowa. And I think that would have been a nice life. But that was not to be. Because in my last year of law school... I received this mysterious phone call. Hmm. Mr. Olson, we think we have a career opportunity that might be of interest to you. To this day, I'm not sure how they found me, but that was the CIA calling. And that led to a series of secret trips to Washington and meetings in safe houses and lots of testing and interviews. 
background investigations, polygraph exams. Finally, I was offered a position we call the clandestine service, the directorate of operations, the undercover espionage and covert action side of the CIA. Now, I remember thinking to myself, this sounds interesting. I'll do this for a couple of years, and then I'm going back to Iowa and uh, pursue that original dream that I had. Of course, it didn't work out that way because once I got there, I realized that spying for our country was in my blood, and I really could not have think of anything that would be more rewarding. And your, your entire family had no idea about these secret trips. They had, they had no idea what you were – what did they think you were doing in, in Washington? We've been undercover the whole time, and so my family thought I was interviewing with the Department of Commerce or with law firms. Uh, You're living a lie, of course, but it's important. Uh, Cover is crucial for us because our effectiveness to spies overseas depends on the integrity of our cover and then also our safety because if you are known as CIA overseas, that could be quite dangerous for you and your family. So we're very meticulous about living our cover. And what, what uh, if you're able to share, I should, I should put a disclaimer that I may ask you things that you may not be able to share, and that's okay. And callers, you're welcome to, to join us too on Voices of Montana at 866-627-5483. If, if you've got some questions you've always wanted to ask a real spy, is, is this gadget real or, or what, uh, <laughs> what's the best movie on spying you, you're welcome to join in the conversation. So Jim, if I, if I ask you anything you, you can't answer, that's totally fine. And, and, um, and we'll agree there'll be no stupid questions. So, so what was, um, tell us about some of those tests they put you through. The testing was about different kind of aptitudes. They also tested your foreign language ability. I think one of the reasons that the CIA approached me was, is that I already spoke pretty good French and Russian. I traveled a lot overseas in the Navy. Uh, former military service is a big plus. It's not a requirement, but we like it when we see it. So they tested all of that and uh, a lot of psychological testing. They really put you through the the mill of finding out what you're made of, what your values are, what your thought processes are. It uh, went on forever. The psychological part of it was uh, really very, very uh, uh, significant. And one of one of the parts of your story that I find the most fascinating is you actually met your wife through this process, and she went undercover with you, correct? That's true. I met Meredith at the CIA. She was already working there. She came out of eastern Washington and was at the CIA. And so we became a husband and wife team, and we went undercover together and lived that lifestyle for 31 years and raised three children undercover. I tell people that the CIA was a great place for me to meet my future spouse because when I met Meredith there, I knew she'd had a thorough background investigation. Very true. <laughs> Got regular yeah. polygraph exams. Of course, she knew the same thing about me. <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah. So, um, so you you meet Meredith, you get married. What's the what's the first what's the first mission? Our first mission was to go out under deep cover uh, as a business person, let me say. I can't Uh be too specific with that. So we went to France and uh, we lived there. All of our children were born in Paris and we really enjoyed learning the ropes of spying in a big international city like Paris. Wow. Uh, But the focus of my career really was Russia. 
And so wherever Russians were, I wanted to be. Our job was to find Russians, Russian officials, intelligence officers, diplomats, any other kind of military people, and to recruit them as sources of information for us, to run them secretly. And of course, that's life and death business because the consequences for them of getting caught are obvious. They're going to be executed. So we took it very, very seriously. It was a heavy responsibility. So my job was to find those Russians, to induce them to cooperate with us secretly, to risk their life on our behalf. And then, of course, the culmination of merits in my career was actually to serve in Moscow. And I can tell you, Courtney, that in our profession, there's nothing better than stealing Russia's secrets on its turf, under its nose, and not getting caught. <laughs> uh, yeah, an adrenaline rush. And we're going to get to that. I, wa- I want to hear more about um, about your time in, in Moscow and and uh, and your thoughts on what's going on in, in Russia now. But place us in time when you when you first started your spy career. What was what was happening in the world in between Russia and the United States back then? The reality of Meredith and my world was the Cold War. We are Cold War warriors. We both did what we did because we believed that our country was under serious threat from Russia. They had the power to destroy us many times over. They were a totalitarian, repressive regime. They threatened our values. And so we felt very fulfilled in dedicating our lives, our careers to to fighting that threat. So that was the focus of what we did. Uh, All through the Cold War, Meredith and I were really looking at Russia and how we can stop the Russians from from stealing our secrets and undermining our country's values. I mean, this is a high stakes game in, in, in any of these places. If you if you were to be caught as a spy, you would be, what, killed, tried? I mean, this is... Yeah, it is a high stakes game. You, you are very aware of that. The consequences of getting caught are bad. You don't want to get caught. And uh, the Russian intelligence services are very good. They had us under surveillance all the time. Our apartment was bugged, and they harassed us, and they were trying to catch us in the act of spying. Because they just assume any American in Russia then is They is had tremendous resources, Courtney. It was amazing what they threw at us. You know, when we were in Moscow, for example, Meredith and I, just one American family, had three KGB surveillance teams assigned to us full-time. Each team had from eight to 10 people on it, and they had three or four vehicles, and they constantly changed the people in their disguises, the vehicles and their characteristics to make it hard for us to get a fix on them. And if Meredith and I had not had all the training we did in the States in surveillance detection before we left, we never would have seen them. They were that good. So, so they, we, were, they were covert about, about not be, trying... To not have you detect who they were. That's right. Okay. They, they were covert because they wanted to catch us in the act. They wanted to find us meeting with a Russian or picking up a dead drop or doing some other operational act. That was their job is surveillance. And what kinds of, what kinds of activities, what kinds of missions would you have when you were there trying to collect information? Our job was to handle the Russian sources that we had. We had some very courageous Russians who for a variety of reasons were cooperating secretly with the CIA. Our job was to make it possible for them to pass their intelligence to us. 
It could be documents. It could be briefings. It could be tapes. It could be discs. Anything that we needed for our country's security. And working with them in Moscow was very challenging because the consequences of being detected by the KGB's counterintelligence would have been disastrous for both the Russians particularly because they would have been executed and for us also as Americans. So we used a lot of what we call tradecraft, things like dead drops and car tosses and signal sites and brush passes to carry out our espionage activity. So what uh, we've got about two minutes before our first break. Can you can you tell us a, a story? Did you have any close calls when you were there, or examples of missions that you thought may uh, <laughs> may not work out? Well, I don't want to really exaggerate the danger we faced, but there were times when Meredith and I were out on missions when it was possible we would not come back. And one that has been publicized now. I never thought it would, but it's out now was an operation that I was involved in. I actually went down a manhole underneath Moscow to tap their top-secret underground communications cables. That was a memorable operation, and if I'd been caught down there, it's clear I definitely would not have come back. They would have staged something because that was very provocative. But it was a successful operation. We could listen in on the KGB's top-secret communications, the, the military's communications, the Kremlin's communications uh, for, for five years before we lost that operation. So w- tell us about the um, disguises aspect. I think about Mission Impossible. And, and, and lately, those you know, there's been those movies where people are pulling off liquid-looking skin. Is that, is that a reality or is that Hollywood? It's nothing. We're much better than that. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If he does say so himself. Our, <laughs> That's our awesome. disguise technology is mind-boggling. Huh. I could have a mask on right now, Courtney, and you would not know it. Wow. It's that lifelike. It's that realistic. And so my masks, when I was operating in Russia, gave me Slavic features, made me look like a Russian. Interesting. And uh, I could then operate around the, the city without being detected. Wow. And what about the gadgets? I imagine the gadgets have changed a, a ton in the years. We're going we're gonna to learn more about that. And, uh, and folks, we're going to get to what, um, what Jim thinks about the war in Ukraine and, and uh, what, what he thinks about, um, about Putin. So stay with us on Voices of Montana. Imagine the perfect flow of grain from the field to the bin. Imagine a single rotor that ensures both quality and productivity. An advanced system that optimizes harvest settings on the go. Well, you don't have to imagine. With features like AFS Harvest Command and Axleflow Combine from Case IH, always delivers the perfect flow for your operation. Talk to Torgerson's about a Case IH Combine today. See your local Torgerson Case IH dealer or go to torgerson.biz. Welcome back to Voices of Montana. My name is Courtney Kibblewhite, in for Tom Schultz today. And, and today I'm talking to Jim Olson, who served in the CIA for over 30 years, now uh, a course at the Bush School of Government at Texas A&M. And he's, and he's sharing the secrets that he is allowed to share um, from his career of, of being undercover in, in Moscow. And, and when we left, we were talking a little bit about, um, about the technology of spying, which to me, it, it, it seems so synonymous with what we see in the movies. So, so Jim, let me throw that question at you about the, I mean, you, you were in Russia in the 70s. So I imagine the 
technology was probably more than we could have imagined at that time. And then now uh, light years even more. I get that question sometimes from my students, Courtney. They ask me, Mr. Olson, in the James Bond movies, what do you think of the spy gadgets that James Bond has? And I tell them, they're good, but ours are better. (laughs) And I think that's true because one of the things that I appreciated most about my career in the CIA was this beautiful marriage, if I can call it that, between the United States intelligence community and the American corporate high-tech sector. American engineers have been very, very helpful to us in the CIA in giving us things that are a generation or two beyond what the public sees. There are a lot of good spy services around the world. The British are good, the French are good, the Australians, the Chinese, many others. But what sets us apart, what makes us I believe unquestionably the most powerful, most effective intelligence service in the world is our technology. Nobody can touch what we can do in terms of technology. And that's thanks in large extent to our own engineers at the CIA, but also to the national laboratories and to our corporate partners, our contractors, high-tech firms that are working with the CIA and developing this mind-boggling technology what we can see from the sky, what we can intercept, what we can decrypt. The gadgets that we spies on the street are given are a difference maker. We are very, very grateful for that edge that we have where we can beat them over and over again. The gadgets are just incredible. When you retire, you're supposed to turn them all in. Some of them are just too good. I'm not making any admissions. Oh, man. That was going to be my next question, but uh, I don't want to get you in trouble. Do you want to see my pen? No, just yeah. kidding. Just what? kidding. I was looking for his lipstick case. But... Wow. Yeah, but that was a, a factor in, in all of our careers. The technology that we had back in the 70s and 80s when I was most active was good. But what we're seeing now is just incredible. People can't even, I believe, begin to imagine what we're able to do with our technology today. Well, but doesn't that also, you you mentioned the public-private partnerships there, doesn't that also open the door for those technology secrets to be stolen if you're now working with more people outside of the the government, more uh, more private actors? That's a really good question. You're thinking in counterintelligence terms. Uh, we are very aware of that. The more people that we involve in our operations, including people in the corporate sector, the more risk we have of losing that technology. So we do have a lot of controls. The people who work with us have to be cleared at a very high level. They too are polygraphed. They have background investigations. We, we monitor their activities very closely, but it does compound the risk. And the risk of losing technology has never been greater today. Don't get me started on China, because what the Chinese are doing in stealing America's technology today is unprecedented. It's outrageous. It makes me very angry. The Chinese are stealing our most important technology secrets. They are pervasive in this country. They are aggressive. And unfortunately, they're very good. So we're hemorrhaging our secrets and our technology, particularly the Chinese. How, how 
how can we let that happen? I mean, you think about, I think I hear you talking about all this technology. How could we possibly let that happen? I don't know why we allow it to happen, but uh, we allow thousands and thousands of Chinese to come into our country. Uh, Our universities are actually filled with Chinese students. I'm not saying that they're all bad, but the Chinese are very aware that this gives them a channel into our universities, into American research, eventually into American companies, because if they stay there long enough, they get their green cards. They eventually get citizenships and clearances. So that is a channel that is of great concern to U.S. counterintelligence. I follow China very closely today because we're aware that they are our most dangerous adversary. They're very formidable, and uh, stopping them is a high priority for us. But the American people have an appetite for cheap Chinese products. Uh, They owe a lot of our debt. And I think both parties are complicit to some extent in allowing that to happen. We don't hold the Chinese sufficiently accountable for what they're doing. I'd like to hit them hard. Hmm. If I were in charge of U.S. counterintelligence again— I would be recruiting their intelligence officers. I would be penetrating them, and I would be flooding them with double agents. I'm a strong proponent of double agents, as I describe in uh, in my my second book. And let's let's get to that in a second. His second book is How to Catch a Spy. We're talking to Jim Olson, a former CIA, and we'll let's dig in more to his uh, background on counterintelligence. Uh, like to go to Russia and even Cuba might come up in the conversation. For now, let's hear from Bar- Brian Bennett's news headlines. State officials are warning residents against coming into contact with floodwaters and recently flooded waterways because of the risk of dangerous debris, chemicals, and bacteria from released wastewater. This is especially true downstream of communities where widespread flooding occurred because water treatment systems may take time to return to normal operation even after floodwaters recede. Congressional candidate Ryan Zinke filed a disclosure report this week. The value of his assets amount to between $8.7 million and $35.6 million dollars. His total debts are reported at between $1.8 million and $6.6 million. The U.S. Senate could vote today on a bill to address mass shootings by tightening gun laws while expanding mental health programs and school security. In a test vote Tuesday evening, Democratic Senator John Tester was in support of the bipartisan bill, while Senator Steve Daines was among Republicans opposed. With Montana News Headlines on the Northern News Network, I'm Brian Bennett. Welcome back to Voices of Montana. I'm Courtney Kibblewhite, your guest host for the day, and we're talking to Jim Olson, former CIA agent and actually a director of counterintelligence at CIA. So, Jim, we talked about your experience with your wife, Meredith, undercover in, in Russia, and, and then you transitioned to, um, to the counterintelligence role. What, uh, what did that change look like? Well, that's true. I, I did uh, move into counterintelligence. In fact, it's become my first love in this business now. Catching spies is very challenging, very rewarding. You're matching wits with the best minds of foreign intelligence services, whether it's the Russians or the Chinese, the Cubans or others. And our job is to beat them, to be better than they are. So it's like kind of a multidimensional chess game, as I describe it. It really started for me in Vienna when I was chief of station there, because Vienna was one of the spy capitals of the world, particularly the Russians, but every intelligence service worthy of the name was active in Vienna. 
So we were quite aware that that was all going on, and we needed to find out what they were doing, particularly the Russians. The real focus of counterintelligence is catching American spies, catching American traitors. And unfortunately, Courtney, there have been far too many Americans who have sold us out. They've gone to the Russians. They've gone to other services. And in almost every case, for money. The low point of my career was working with four or five different people at the CIA. People I knew and trusted, considered in some cases friends, who went to the other side. The most notorious, of course, was Aldrich Rick Ames. I had known Rick since the 1970s. We'd worked together. He worked for me twice in counterintelligence. And Rick was paid several million dollars uh, by the Russians for his cooperation. He is a despicable human being because Rick not only betrayed the CIA and our country and all of his friends, but he also was a murderer because he gave the Russians the identity of some 30 Russians who were working secretly with us. So he knew that he was consigning them to a certain fate, execution. So Rick is not only a traitor to our country, he's also a murderer. And I think of him every day. He's in prison now for the rest of his life. That's the perfect place for him. But the damage that he did is just unthinkable. And unfortunately, there were many others like that. So I found it very motivating to redirect my career into catching these people, to catching spies. In fact, that's the title of my my book, To Catch a Spy. And that's what we do. We find Americans who, for whatever reason, and it's usually uh, money, but sometimes other motivations, decide that they will work for the other side. This is your guest host, Courtney Kibblewhite on Voices of Montana, and and today I have the pleasure of talking to Jim Olson, who's had a fascinating career in the CIA and will be speaking tonight at the Montana Bankers Association, and, and I'm sure what's been on the back of everyone's minds, And but tonight you're going to address the uh, Montana Bankers Association meeting, and, and everyone's curious what do you what do you know about Putin? I mean, Putin was um, working for the KGB at the time you were you were in Russia. Is that correct? Yes, I first started following Vladimir Putin back in the 1980s when he was a KGB lieutenant colonel in East Germany, and we already knew back then, Courtney, what he was. We knew already that this man's a killer, that he's ruthless, that he has absolutely no scruples whatsoever, and he's even more dangerous now than he was uh, back then. When he left the KGB and went into politics, we all said, this is bad news. For a killer to go into Russian politics cannot be good. And of course, our worst fears have been realized. How would you know he's a killer? What, he, wasn't he undercover? He was undercover. He was working with the East German Stasi. They were conducting uh, terrorist attacks around Europe, killing people. So we attributed uh, a murder to, to Putin himself. Uh, what he's doing now, of course, is uh, just unspeakably bad. Uh, this man's a monster. What he's doing to Ukrainian people is one of the worst war crimes we've ever seen. He's got to be held accountable. We've got to stop him somehow. Uh, the courageous Ukrainian people are standing up to this man. And 
They deserve our full support. I'm proud of our country. I'm proud of all the Western countries who are stepping forward, who are providing not only moral support, but uh, military equipment support, intelligence support. It's been very, very helpful to the Ukrainians. Putin has had to readjust his goals because of the resistance. He underestimated uh, how strong that resistance would be. He underestimated Zelensky as an inspiring leader. I mean, this man has risen to international commendation for how he has led his country in time of crisis. Wow. And I I think about, um, and maybe it's a a simple, simple thought, but I've heard it come up in conversation. So assuming other people might have thought it too, many of us just think, why can't we just take out Putin? Why can't, you know, we've got these Navy SEALs, we've got this great technology. Tell me the faults in in that logic, or or what do you think about that? I got that question from one of my students down at the Bush School in one of my intelligence classes. Mr. Olson, the CIA has people in Russia, right? I said, yes. And so then the student said, well, couldn't one of them get close enough? I said, don't don't go there. Don't go there. We don't talk about that kind of thing. (laughs) Okay. But the truth is that Putin will not survive Ukraine. This is my prediction. I don't have any hard facts, but I believe that he is destroying Russia. And there are some good Russian people who are shocked and saddened and uh, furious about what he's doing to the country, what he's doing to brother and sister Slavs in Ukraine. They realize they've got to stop this monster. And I believe that some combination of the military services in Russia the intelligence services, and the oligarchs will finally decide enough is enough. And they will find a way to take him out. Hmm. And taking him out could mean simply deposing him or exiling them. But I think the Russian solution is more likely. And so I think Vladimir Putin is a dead man walking. Well, and we've heard different stories about, um, you know, Ukrainians calling their their friends and family in Russia who have no idea what's going on or a complete misunderstanding. Could you share a bit more about the role of, of propaganda, what what you saw when, when you were in Russia and, and, and what you think um, about the, that's happening there now? The Russians have always been very skillful propaganda. They, they sell their story. They misrepresent who they are and what their objectives are. You see that in Ukraine. He's calling it a a limited military action to protect the rights of the ethnic Russians in Ukraine, which is nonsense. The truth is, is that Putin is power hungry. He's a megalomaniac. He wants to seize the territory. And unless somebody stops him, uh, he will continue. I am afraid that the next stop on the Putin campaign will be Moldova. I think Moldova is just sitting there. He's already got Transnistria, the the breakaway province in eastern Moldova, as a base of operations. He's got his troops there. And I believe that he will continue his encirclement of the Ukraine by uh, attacking Moldova. They're very aware of it. And they are pretty much powerless to prevent that if he decides to go in with military force. Can I ask a quick question? Sure, go, okay? go okay. ahead. Great. So uh, I was I was reading recently. So 
it looks like Sweden and possibly Finland are thinking of joining NATO and they're trying to rush them through. Um, yep. And I think uh, the same goes for Ukraine itself. Ukraine recently, uh, they're trying to fast-track uh, Ukraine into NATO um, or into the European Union, I should say. Um, so how is that going to be? Uh, I mean, that's that's got to stop Russia in some way, possibly. Yeah, it's ironic, isn't it, Jonathan, that one of the ostensible reasons that Putin went into Ukraine was to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. And what he's done in the process of invading Ukraine is to strengthen NATO. NATO has not been this strong in many, many years and more united. And if Sweden and Finland come in, which looks like it's a certainty now, we are expanding NATO. Look at what the Germans did. Look how they responded. That was something we had not expected. So NATO now is a much more formidable foe for Putin than it ever would have been otherwise. I think any aims that he had of attacking a NATO country, he is now shelved because he realized that his military has performed so badly against a relatively small military in Ukraine. He doesn't want to take on NATO. An attack on any NATO country is an attack on all. So I think that NATO countries now are pretty much uh, protected from any of the expansion designs of Putin. But Moldova, as you know, is not a part of uh, NATO. And uh, Belarus, he's just decided to use as a puppet state. And he has control of them in that regard. He would like to make Ukraine a puppet state. That was his initial objective, to capture Kiev, to chase away or to arrest or to kill Zelensky. Uh, that didn't work. He was repulsed. So he's got more limited goals now. He wants to consolidate his power in eastern Ukraine. And he would love to control the entire Black Sea coast. But to do that, he's got to take Odessa. And Odessa is going to be the next city that's going to get the, uh, the brunt of Russian attacks. Uh, I think what we're going to see in Odessa is very similar to what we saw, sadly, in Mariupol. Well, what do you think about the U.S.'s involvement in this conflict? I, I heard the other day that it's now we're sitting at $26.6 billion that have been sent over to support mostly weaponry um, for Ukraine. Is that is that the right approach? Should we have done more earlier? What do you think about our, our, our leadership as uh, such a, a powerful ally in NATO? We're speaking frankly here, Courtney. Yes. And the truth is that I believe we were slow. I don't think we responded as quickly as we needed to. I think we let the Europeans take the lead and they stepped up and that was fine. But I'd like to have seen a lot more forceful role from the United States right from the beginning. We are catching up and I am very proud of our country for what we're doing in terms of getting military equipment to the Ukrainians. The stingers and the other equipment that we've sent to them uh, have been a difference maker. We are taking out Russian tanks, the Ukrainians are, uh, Russian aircraft. And so our, our armaments, and not only the United States, but the other Western countries as well, have kept the Ukrainian military afloat. But it's a day-by-day -day thing. And Zelensky's constantly calling for more and more, and I think we should oblige. I think we should give him what he needs. Do you think the rest of Europe is doing enough? I think the, the Germans, number one. But the other countries as well, I'd like to put in just a kind word for Poland. Thank goodness for Poland because the Poles have really showed tremendous character 
in doing everything possible, accepting the refugees, providing military support. Uh, the Poles have a very rich history. They've uh, suffered greatly from invasion. So they understand what's going on there. So my hat's off to Poland. I would like to make that point very, very clearly that without the Poles, uh, the Ukrainians probably would not be where they are today. Well, I'd like to, to take a, a final break here, and, and when we come back, we'll, we'll talk more with Jim Olson, former CIA, about what his message will be tonight for the Montana Bankers Association. Um, and before we go to break, I just wanted to remind everyone that, um, that, of course, more than half of job seekers are interested in working for you if your business offers retirement solutions. So let Montana Retirement Choices Program cut the complexity of offering a 401k while keeping your business competitive. Check out Montana chamber.com to learn more. You take pride in your equipment. When a belt is loose or squealing, you tighten it. But what about the most important piece of equipment on your operation? That's you. If your mind isn't running on all cylinders, you can't be effective for your farm or your family. Don't wrench on it alone. If something's not quite right, call someone who can help. Get free, confidential guidance from wherever you are. You can't control the weather, but you can control how you react. To connect with a professional, head to beyondtheweather.com. Wrapping up the fastest hour in Montana radio, I'm Courtney Kibble-White. We're on Voices of Montana, and we've been talking to Jim Olson, who has served our country, man, I'd say 50 years, Jim, because your your time in the Navy, your time in the CIA, and and now, of course, training next generation's leaders at, uh, at Texas A&M University. Jim, what uh, what final thoughts do you have um, have for us related to to intelligence and could be the war uh, the war that's going on right now overseas or what what would you like folks in Montana to know about the intelligence community? I'd like Montanans to know how vitally important intelligence is for the security of our country. Most people have no idea of who we are or what we do. I believe that intelligence is the front line. It's the early warning system that we have. The American people, I think, should appreciate the fact that we are out there protecting them. We are taking some risks on their behalf. But all of us who serve in the intelligence community for the United States, and I'm speaking particularly for my colleagues in the CIA, are there because of them. Our mission is to serve the American people. We serve the President of the United States. We're part of the executive branch, regardless of party, regardless of ideology. But in our minds, above all, we're serving the American people. And thank goodness we're out there because we have thwarted so many attacks on America because of our superior intelligence. We have infiltrated terrorist groups. We've taken terrorists out. And that's really good for our country. So I would like the people to know that we would appreciate your support. Uh, inform yourselves, learn about who we are, what we do, and uh, support candidates who believe in our country and believe in keeping our country safe uh, because uh, we need that kind of help. Well, and it's it's interesting to me, yeah, just how much how much we don't know and, and what does make the news. I'm, I'm saying this as a media person, but we're probably not going to hear about all the attacks that have been thwarted, at least not um, not to the level that we hear about the ones that happen. That's true. We are the silent service. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We do not do what we do for any kind of public recognition. We take a great deal of personal satisfaction in knowing that we're making a difference, that we're out there keeping our country safer. But we don't do it for the money. You know, we're government public service, so you don't get rich in intelligence. If you get rich in intelligence, we start an investigation because <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's not supposed to happen. Right. But our benefits are fine and we take care of our families. Uh, but we do it because we believe in this country. Meredith and I say the same thing. We've never known finer people than the people we served with in the CIA. They're patriotic. They're decent. They're hardworking. They're people who have values that we identify with. And that was such a privilege to been able to uh, have worked with those people. Being out of the CIA now is hard because you miss all those contacts. You miss that daily interaction with people that you respected so much and have such a strong identity with. I don't get that very often down at Texas A&M. Right. Uh, we do have people in our program who have been in the intelligence community. The focus of our program is practitioner-based. We want to train our young men and women who are becoming spies in their own right uh, with uh, the kind of backgrounds. We're teaching something we've done. You know, I've got nothing against academics. I have wonderful academic colleagues down there. But it makes a difference. In training people to become spies, intelligence officers, it's very helpful that you're, you're teaching them something that you've done so they can appreciate exactly how it's done on the street. Wow. Well, let's let's take a minute and just um, thank those people who have served our country in the clandestine service. We I appreciate your service, Jim, and to all your colleagues that will probably never be named. Um, we thank them and we appreciate them keeping us safe. To learn more about Jim, you might want to check out his books, To Catch a Spy or Fair Play, both available on Amazon or your favorite bookstore. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Comments and opinions heard are those of the host or callers and not necessarily those of this station, sponsors, or Northern News Network. Join us Monday through Friday at 9.06 for Voices of Montana.